This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we have an important discussion about making the future of healthcare more accessible, accurate, and equitable through AI and technology-enabled solutions. We have on our show this week Dr. Karen DeSalvo, Chief Health Officer at Google. She's an internist. She's a health leader working at the intersection of medicine, public health, and information technology. She's dedicated her career to improving health outcomes for all, with a focus on solutions that address all the determinants of health. Dr. DeSalvo continues to be a powerful voice and advocate for eliminating inequities and improving the public's health. She's someone that's widely recognized in our industry and beyond. She's been on Business Insider's list of 100 people transforming business. She's repeatedly been on the list of Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential People in Healthcare. She brings this lifelong commitment to public health and health transformation to Google, where her team of health professionals provide guidance for the development of Google's research products and services, including those for Google's own employees and family members. She's previously served as the health commissioner in post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans, then as the national coordinator for health information technology. She was the assistant secretary for health in the Obama administration. And under her watch at Google, her teams have optimized search and YouTube to better answer common health questions, update consumer health wearables to function like medical devices, and they're building artificial intelligence products to meet industry demands. Let's now hear from Dr. Karen DeSalvo as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Karen, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so wonderful to have you on the show this week. Well, Eric, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about the conversation. I'd like to start our conversation today with the assumption that information is a determinant of health. This is something that's really understood by Google. People come to Google with health-related questions hundreds of millions of times a day. They also turn to YouTube, where videos about health conditions are viewed more than 100 billion times globally. In addition, people want more personal insights about their health through wearables and mobile devices. This future of health is really consumer-driven. People expect a mobile-first experience with personalized insights, services, care, and enterprises like Google are evolving to meet customers where they are. And Google Health is doing just that by building health into products and services people use every day. And I was looking at the mission for Google Health, and it's to organize the world's health information and make it universally accessible and useful and by delivering authoritative and authentic health information. I just love how your enterprise is helping people find agency to navigate their journey. And people are relying on Google hardware for personalized insights about their steps and sleep and heart health to inform a healthier lifestyle. There's more than 3 billion devices now on the planet that use Android. And all of this culminates into solutioning that's putting tools in the hands of consumers, caregivers, and communities to democratize access to health. So I wanted to ask you, in describing this future of health as consumer-driven, what specific shifts do you see in how individuals are engaging with their health, and how does Google Health plan to meet the, these evolving expectations? 
Eric, thanks for representing our point of view so well. That was really terrific. We really do have a very cons heavy consumer orientation to the way we see our opportunity to improve the health of everyone everywhere. And that is a future that is near and near all the time, one where people have this expectation that they're going to be met where they are with a, a very mobile first or digital experience and that the experience will be increasingly personalized and anticipatory for helping them take those next steps. Enterprises are going to need to evolve their business to meet people in that more virtual world and also have a way that they can help people know when it's time to show up at the facility because facilities and hospitals will always be necessary. But I think this, what we're seeing is this increasing evolution of people's expectations. The pandemic certainly showed that consumers, when they have the opportunity, want options like telehealth. They want to be able to have self-directed testing, uh, whether that's for COVID or something else, right? And the, the privacy and comfort of their own home. So as that world evolves, I, I think for us at Google, it's also important that people are doing that work in a way that is in, uh, informed by high quality information, by personalized insights, and that they have the technology and tools to help them easily access and identify the best care that, that might be available for them. This kind of comes out of, for me, a, a strong interest that developed when I was practicing medicine. And I'm, I'm old enough that I remember when patients arrived in my office with a spiral bound notebook where they'd written down all their, their finger stick measurements, all their glucose levels, all their blood pressures. Uh, then later they would come in with a, a spreadsheet with that information in it. And now of course we have our automated ways that their devices can input that into a dashboard. But I really loved it when I had patients that were expressing their agency in that way and coming in and, and showing me their essentially their quantitative and qualitative diet. I ate this or I exercised or I had this stressful day at work or I took a trip and I didn't want to take my diuretic and so my blood pressure went up. These were ways that, that they were talking me through and then I could help them through ways that they were going to self-manage for that 99% of their life that they were not in my office or in a hospital bed, but actually just living their life. And experiencing that as a physician also meant that I wanted to help educate them. And I had ways that I did it, but in a busy office practice, I also knew that they were going to need more than my words or even the pamphlet that I might hand them as they walked out the door. So, you know, some 25 years later, we have so many more tools at our disposal as a society to be able to help people track and measure their own health, to be able to share that with their physician or, or their, their clinical team and to be able to find information about their health conditions or importantly, find those messengers that really resonate with them. Take search, for example, you can search on a topic like diabetes and find information from the American Diabetes Association or whatever ever other organization might make sense for you, read about it. We also know that people want to hear about that or see it talked about from people like them. And so we have uh, features that we are, we're developing on the search platform where you can find someone who is a middle-aged white woman who's interested in diabetes, but you can also flip over to YouTube and hear that trusted information from whether it's a healthcare provider or a sports figure or a musician, or someone else that you already follow their channel and, and trust. So that, that conveyance of the information through other trusted messengers is an important way that we address information as a determinant of, of health. So we were, I'd say, Eric, that the whole world is earlier on this journey of seeing the right ways to serve that information up to people to meet them where they are. But I'm really excited about the um, increasing opportunity we have to help make that not only high, more high quality, but also uh, more personal for people so that it really does feel authentic and, and resonates with them as they're engaging that journey. At the end of the day, when they show back up in the office with the doc or wherever, whatever other encounter they're going to have with the health system virtually or otherwise, they're going to show up with more knowledge and power. And that is a really priority goal that, that we have here at the company and that I've carried with me forward from my time practicing medicine. Karen, I'd love to engage you on the future of AI and why you see it as a transformative path forward and transforming population health in the U.S. And, and beyond. You recently wrote a blog that began with the opening remark, as a doctor and Google's chief health officer, I believe AI has the potential to transform the health of people on a planetary scale akin to the discovery of penicillin. If discovered boldly and responsibly, AI stands to be a powerful force 
for health equity, improving outcomes for everyone and everywhere. And that's such a remarkably optimistic statement on the transformative potential of AI to really enable us to tackle big societal challenges from advancing medical research to improving the accuracy and efficiency of diagnostic processes and health information quality. And at Google, your teams are deploying AI in your products to, to help people in everyday moments. That might look like somebody accessing mental health resources on search, finding a match for a skin condition with Google Lens, getting health insights from irregular heart rhythms, or powering the most accurate heart rate tracking, tracking on Fitbit. And you have teams that are moving research from the bench to the bedside to democratize access to health across the world's most critical diseases by applying AI to conditions like breast and colorectal cancer screening and chest X-ray imaging. So I wanted to ask you if you could delve deeper into why you believe AI has this transformative potential to impact population health on a global scale. We certainly believe that there's going to be increasing opportunity for consumers directly and the caregivers and enterprises that are supporting them with these technologies. And you can imagine a world in the future where everyone has access to the best quality care on their phone and it's enabled or it's an extension of their physical care team, their human care team, but that personal health agent may also be able to help them not just answer questions about their meds, but help them be as an extension of primary care. And it could be incredibly affordable. So we're looking to work with partners to create that as a reality. We build the, the technology, we build the platforms, we won't deliver that care. However, we're seeing a lot of excitement and interest from all parts of the world um, in high, middle, and low-income countries to develop that kind of technology. And gosh, Eric, I think it's about a billion people on the planet that don't have access to any primary care. So this is also an opportunity to think about how AI fills workforce challenges, reduces cognitive load to address burnout, fills capability and capacity gaps that we have in places like the U.S., but all over the world. It's not a new journey for us. We use AI every day in all of the, the ways that we work with consumers and with caregivers and communities. We, for example, uh, on search, when you search on a topic, especially something that's very high risk related to say mental health, we use large language models to, to identify searches and help point people in a direction, especially if it's a high risk direction, let's say, for example, we, we, the large language model might see some patterns in the words that would point to that person being potentially suicidal. And in that case, we want to interrupt the user search and pop up the, what we call a one box, like the call in line in the US, it's 988, but we do this in countries around the world. So we're already using large language models and AI on search. We're using it on YouTube to help identify the highest quality videos that have been identified in partnership with authoritative groups like the American College of Physicians in the US um, or the, the Council for Medical Specialty Societies. And we do this for AFib detection on our, on our watch products. And then of course, um, on cloud, and we, we're, we're working with enterprises using AI for diagnostics, therapeutics, uh, analytics, population health. And I think the reality though, is the change that happened about a year ago with with ChatGPT and the creation of this consumer-focused large language model, everyone's interest really ticked up on how to create something that, create how that created a model that was of great consumer interest because it felt more like it was interactive and engaging. It wasn't doing analytics and performing a task behind the scenes. They moved it in front of the scenes. We've done, we've now done something similar at Google where we've taken our behind the scenes, large language models and other AI tools, and we're making them more out front. So on the search surface, we call that search generative experience, a way that when you ask a question, it takes the links, reads them and writes a paragraph, but provides you the citation of where the source of information came from. We have BARD, which 
is a more empathetic and interactive kind of tool that isn't going to be as oriented towards finding you the citation, but, but maybe more about answering questions. We're not using it that much for health yet because we're still working on the science of that model. But over time, you'll, you'll see that as a, a more front-facing tool for consumers. And you can imagine behind the scenes, um, we're working uh, on our hardware products also to think about how we can enhance the capabilities of things like the Fitbit experience with large language models. We, we talked recently about how we're doing that through something called Fitbit Labs. And then, of course, lots of interest, particularly in MedPalm, which is our medically tuned large language model, to be available to payers, providers, pharma and life sciences, as well as research organizations to understand how enterprises might be able to take advantage of a, a medically tuned, a domain-specific large language model to, to improve things like accelerating scientific advancement because it can improve the, you know, advance the literature search, improve the design of clinical trials to make them more equitable, but help reduce waste in the system for payers and Im improve opportunities for easing documentation burden in the clinical environment. Very actively, we've got quite a number of partners that are testing and learning with our medically tuned MedLM, Med but it's also, I think, just the beginning of the journey, Eric, quite honestly. And, but the I, so I'm very optimistic. I do need to say that I spend actually more of my personal day and my team does as well in the vein of let's first do no harm because as exciting as the opportunity is and we want there to be testing and learning, we also believe that the models, both the foundational models and those that are either fine-tuned or being used in certain ways, they're still in a phase where they need a lot of human in the loop and need to be improved in a number of through the number of performance characteristics, essentially addressing hallucination, consistency, factuality. So these are ongoing streams of work to test and learn with what we already have available in, with partners and on our own in our own products, and then also work on those the foundational layer to see that it is going to um, be safe and useful and be frankly something that's going to help and improve health for people on a global scale in ways that are addressing some of the most impactful but problems, but doing that in a, in a responsible way. Well, Karen, this really is an exciting opportunity for our future. And with healthcare on a global level, dealing with so many challenges like staff shortages, data overload, workflow inefficiency, limited access to care, the need for innovative solutions has never been greater. And with the explosion of chat GPT and large language models, generative AI is really emerging as this technology that can create this transformational opportunity across society. And that includes that delivery of efficient and effective healthcare. If we're able to extract these valuable insights from vast amounts of data, it could revolutionize our efforts to improve population health. And it seems like AI could offer a solution in the form of advanced tools that can convert complex data into actionable insights through summaries and AI-based predictions and intuitive visualizations that can help clinicians make informed decisions efficiently and quickly. Moreover, by combining this predictive analytics capability with data from other sources, such as the patient's medical record, generative AI could be even more accurate and provide robust clinical predictions so clinicians can intervene and prevent those poor outcomes. And the implications of AI and healthcare are so vast. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how you see it impacting clinicians in the years to come. Your team at Google Health is working on so many use cases from helping radiologists to detect breast cancer to supporting diabetic retinopathy screening. What do you see as some of the higher value target opportunities for AI to empower clinicians to provide higher quality care in the future? Eric, you defined it well. For us at Google, we see technology as a tool in the toolbox of the physician and other clinicians on the team. We, we don't see it replacing that care for a variety of reasons, inc including that healthcare is human. And that is, is thematic in the way that we've been working on what I'll call our single shot AI tools. You mentioned some, our MAMO reader, which we've worked on, for example, with the National Health Service and Northwestern University here in the US to create a tool that does things like reads the, mammo the mammogram and sorts the cue so the highest risk 
films go to the top when there's fresh eyes and the radiologist can read them early on. In the UK, the model is they require two radiologists to read the mammogram and they have a shortage of radiologists. So AI is being looked at as the second tool. So a human radiologist reads, the AI reads, if they agree, the result is shared with the person. If there's a disagreement, then a human is the third reader. This solves a, a capacity gap that that a place like the, U, the UK would have. And we partner with ICAD to help bring that out to more places in the world. But thematically, that is, we, we look for opportunities where there are workforce shortages or there's a, a high burden of work or resource challenges in general. Take, for example, work we're doing on reading uh, chest x-rays to identify tuberculosis, particularly multi-drug tuberculosis. In Sub-Saharan Africa, there, there's a need to be careful about the use of some of the diagnostic tests for, for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. So identifying which plain films are more likely to, to be from a, a person who would need those additional diagnostic tests helps to, to be thoughtful for those communities about, about resource allocation, even for something like diagnosis of TB. What, what changes in, the, in this new um, generation of AI is that we go from needing to build a model that has that performs a task to building a model that can perform many tasks. So it becomes a much more agile help meet to the clinicians, to the doctors and others. And I think honestly, it's gonna feel much more, there's a, a return on investment for the physician. So I'm gonna have a tool in my toolbox that's a little more like my stethoscope. Let me use a sort of clunky example but I'm an internal medicine doc and my stethoscope is of course for examining the heart, the lungs, the abdomen, but I also used it to test reflexes. I bet every internist out there did lots of other docs. So it had, has other, sometimes you have a tool in your toolbox that in a pinch you need to use for other purposes. I think generative AI and these new large language models are gonna be a bit like that for clinicians. It's gonna summarize the medical record it's going to um, help you um, see what next, what new evidence there is available that you may not have had a chance to read because of the millions of, of published papers uh, that come out, or when there's a change in a recommended um, clinical pathway by, say, the American Heart Association or someone. It's going to update that for your clinical knowledge. So it's like having the best intern or medical student at your side all the time. That's like in the library or online, learning the next best thing to do. But it'll bring that right to to right to you as you're looking at the summary of the chart and making the best decision for that patient. It'll also, over time, I think, be able to help us with, do things like reduce bias in decision-making, help us know that, boy, for all other patients like this, you made decision A, and in this one, you're making decision B. Just take a step back and make sure that there's not some implicit bias in the decision-making that, that you're having. So that, and that will improve uh, equity and also the quality of care. It helps us to uh, make certain that wherever we can, uh, when I say we medicine writ large, I'm not talking about Google here, but the tools that'll get built by systems will, uh, my vision is that it's going to improve the quality for everyone everywhere. And that's going to also relate to improving the uh, evidence base of, of medicine and the timeliness of, of deploying that evidence right into the field and personalize that more because physicians will have much better and more information about that person that they're caring for synthesized in front of them. And can I just say it succinctly, I, I genuinely think that these this next generation of AI models is going to bring joy back to medicine. It's going to reduce that cognitive burden, give me back some time to be with the patient, to be understanding the things that aren't just facts that are in the medical record, but that additional layer of information and context that I need to understand and to think through what are the, the pros and cons of the decisions I'm going to make for care delivery? And we all know not everything in medicine has a distinct answer, right? So sometimes we have to use our judgment and it's predicated on experience and on context of the patient and on knowledge and, and on the decision-making conversations that we, we would have with patients. So I really envision a world in which physicians are going to see this as really important additional tool in their toolbox because it's more agile and nimble and multimodal and because it's allowing them to be more at the, the top of the scope or the way that we went into medicine to really engage with that with our patients and do that and, and deliver care in a way that's 
most um, ideal for, for that patient in front of us, but also built on the strongest evidence. Well, Karen, I appreciate you bringing up uh, implicit bias in the clinical setting. The industry right now is deeply introspective and in realizing that routine medical practice continues to treat black and brown patients differently from white patients. And this must change if we're going to truly transform uh, healthcare on a global scale and improve outcomes for all. And as we're looking to ensure health equity, there's growing concern around AI, machine learning, data science, and the risk of automation and reinforcing existing biases through the use of algorithms. And there was a, a research study I remember seeing a few years ago that discussed how an algorithm that was commonly used to identify eligibility for care management programs reduced the number of Black patients identified for extra care by more than a half. And in that example, removing that algorithmic bias would result in about a 30% rise in Black patients who are at high risk for receiving additional services. And the historical use of the incomplete and biased data, it can exacerbate the risk of harm and bias among historically marginalized populations. And to correct this, I know Google Health is carefully considering how an AI system will be used in practice and your teams are grounding the evaluation of large language models and specific real world use cases that can be used to reflect the experiences of marginalized populations and in doing so reduce potential issues of algorithmic bias and in improve health equity. So I wanted to ask you if you could describe how your teams at Google are working to improve fairness, reduce risk of bias and drive towards equity in the performance of your AI models? And, and more specifically, could you also update our listeners on how MedPalm, which is Google's large language model that's aligned to the medical domain, can benefit clinicians in the future in their efforts to improve efficiency and accuracy of clinical care while also reducing health disparities? By all means, let me take those in, in, in two buckets because they're related but distinct. I'll start with equity, which is one of our core values as a company broadly, and certainly for our health team, one of my earliest actions when I became the chief health officer here at the company was to create a health equity team that could not only increase awareness for our scientists and our product developers about the importance of being intentional uh, around addressing equity, particularly as you described for um, communities of color uh, who have historically been underrepresented in research and or whom for whom the healthcare system um, can can have significant impl implicit bias and where sometimes race-based uh, decisions or inclusion in algorithms can lead to, to negative health and care outcomes and 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 those that backdrop in, in the medical field is undergoing revision improvement and change whether it's clinical care algorithms for things like cardiovascular or renal disease assessments or it's the, the care delivery in the ways that John Perlin and the Joint Commission are, are setting expectations for the healthcare system. So we certainly want to be a part of that opportunity to drive equity into the work that's happening all across the health system. And we think that our part of this is in creating equity by design. So the team, we think about the arc of, of equity in our work as involving a few key buckets. The first is what are the questions that we're going to ask and try to solve? So we talk, for example, here a lot about the four M's. So these are metabolic disease, malignancy, maternal health, and mental health. Not only are these important global health challenges affecting morbidity and mortality and cost around the world, but they also have significant disparities associated with them. So they're priorities for, for the use cases that we want to develop as we're thinking about but it's the information or insights or enterprise um, solutions that we want to either build or build with others. So that's the, what are the problems to solve? Are we thinking about things that, that really affect, affect the world and people and could have uh, inequ inequitable outcomes and, and treatments and where you can make a difference by um, elevating the, the, the notion and actually create more health, more equitable health outcomes. The next bucket is the partners with whom we work to, to either have get data, so a cloud partner who's going to use their data on our in their cloud instance to develop a, a tool, or perhaps it's going to be a research partner that we would work with, or anonymized data that we would get for ourselves uh, from publicly available de-identified data sources. It matters the sourcing of that because 
you want to make sure that you're thinking about the population that's going to build out the AI algorithm or, or the models. Then you get to the model piece, which is the way it's developed, the way it's weighted, the way it's interpreted. This all matters with respect to who's on that team and what kind of input uh, we have uh, to the development of the model. And of course, now in the generative AI world, uh, we and others, but definitely we are doing a lot of adversarial testing of the performance of the models. And so having a different perspectives, diverse perspectives on the performance of those models matters. So that's the technical piece of the building. And then there's the deployment. How do you decide how you're going to use this new tool, whether it's some capability of one of our hardware or the way that we're going to deploy um, uh, language capability or dubbing capability on YouTube. We want to make sure we're, we're thinking about the availability of these tools and technology for everyone everywhere. We have, as a company, underlying that, I'd say two big themes around equity. One is thinking about our platform. So think search, YouTube, cloud, or Android as being affordable and available to communities and organizations and individuals at, at a variety of price points. So that's important. We're not a premium product group. We make, we want to make our technology and tools and platforms broadly available. That is thematic also in health and then diversity, equity, inclusion of our own team. So for me, it's really important that I build teams that have different walks of life, different life experiences that they're, that they can bring who they are to help solving the problem and that we're open to the varying points of view. And sometimes that is because they're from communities of color. It's also true that we want people who have um, not only run hospitals in the U.S., but have done so in rural India. So uh, diversity is such an important theme, not only for the company, but for me, it's a really important priority because I, it helped who, who you are determines what, and that will help us think about the models and, and research and products that we develop. So all of that is our sort of equity by design approach. And it just gets ever more important when it comes to generative AI. The data into that is, is coming from a broader set of sources. There's certainly going to be challenge and risk in the early stages of these foundation models that they are being informed by the inherent biases in knowledge and science and data from the existing healthcare system. Everything that we can do to smooth that and to look for those kinds of output challenges is a priority for us uh, as a team with respect to health because the implications are so significant and it's such a such an important priority for us. So that's the high level equity piece. I'll pause there in case you have a question and if not, I'll go on to MedPalm, which is one of our tools that we've developed that's a medically tuned large language model. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that tool. I've, I've read a little bit about it. If you could elaborate, I think our listeners would really uh, be interested in that. Terrific. You're going to be seeing a lot more because we have uh, a few manuscripts in the pipeline. They're going to come out. This is a, a way of informing the ecosystem, building trust and being as transparent as we can be about the science that we develop. We've always done this with our AI work. We're doing it still with our large language models. MedPalm is a medically tuned domain-specific large language model that was the first large language model to achieve a grand challenge in medicine of passing or essentially showing that it passed a, the USMLE, the US Medical Licensing Exam Test. Some people might remember AlphaGo. So this is a, a grand challenge that to, to have a, a large language model be able to win a game called Go. That was a challenge that that AI scientists had in, in a sort of gamification field. The passing a, a, a USMLE like exam is the medical equivalent of that. So we were the first to show that we could pass that exam. We exceeded that score within just a, a very few months and MedPalm was able to achieve an excellent score of about 87 and a half percent. It's passed that exam in India as well, and we're working on that in, in other countries so that it's multilingual, and we're not just thinking about this being for English speaking, but for other for other geographies. So that's a, the background of, of MedPalm. We've been continuing to advance its capabilities, including um, its ability to do things like multimodal work, read a chest x-ray, read an EKG, do voice to text, and have continued to work on improving its factuality to, to, as it answers questions, both in short form and in long form, 
And we've been working with partners also on how it can work towards aiding and supporting developing things like a differential diagnosis that clinicians can look at or helping to write reports of films and other, say, radiographic or, or other images. So that's the technology and the tooling. We, we made it available from the time of publication of the paper in December of 22 to making an API available on cloud. We did it in about five months. We've got customers all over the planet that are, are working with it, including, uh, for example, here in the U.S., HCA Healthcare has been working, at, uh, working with it for use cases like uh, summarization of, of records to reduce work burden for nursing. We're using it to summarize information, say, for health benefits, so more of a consumer-facing, I want to know if I'm covered for X, Y, or Z, and then have been also testing and learning on it in some of our internal products to see how it performs for some consumer-facing, but also some of our hardware-facing efforts. So we're, we've made it available so that customers can start to use it. We're learning about how to make it as accurate as possible so that it's do no harm, but also performing the opportunity to reduce burden um, for clinicians and, and many other parts of the health ecosystem, not just in healthcare delivery, but in payers and in life sciences. And um, I'm, I'm honestly quite excited about some of the science you're going to see coming out from us that shows its additional capabilities in areas I mentioned, like the multimodal being able to be assistive, not just in answering text questions, but looking at films and doing some summarization there. And then its capabilities with respect to helping to bring forward ideas to the clinician to, to augment differential diagnosis. This is not a product. I want to be really clear about that. This is research that we're doing, but it, it, it informs the way that we want to keep developing the model when partners healthcare systems like an HCA or Bayer Pharmaceuticals might want to use it uh, for, for their own purposes with their own data. The, the work behind the scenes is super interesting from a purely scientific standpoint, Eric. It's uh, what I mean, for example, is that large language models have many capabilities. Um, constraining them to do the appropriate thing is such an important priority. And, and I'll use an example here that like people don't really want to sonnet about their chemotherapy. They want to know what does the evidence say about the chemotherapy. So in this case, making sure that we're constraining and grounding the MedPalm model so that when the clinician asks a question, it's going to get an accurate reference to the citation from, from the manuscript or from the, out, from the, the care pathway that makes the most sense uh, for that patient, but also is the evidence-based uh, information. And it's really, as a leader, it's really fun for me to watch the teams lean in hard on that. And because these are clinicians and AI scientists working hand in glove to make sure that we're creating something that's going to solve real problems in the real world that partners will be able to use, but also that we're doing it in a way that honors our codes around you know, ethics and, and equity and evidence, and that it is something that we would think about using in our own practice if we were practicing, but we want to make sure that we're, we're creating really clinically relevant opportunity for the use of MedPalm. I want to say one quick thing though about this, which is one of the other things we've learned in the last year is that MedPalm is, it's like that attending that you had on rounds that knew everything, um, but maybe didn't have the best bedside manner. And um, now clearly people can have both, Though there sometimes having both is hard in a person, it's also hard in a model. And we, we've learned that sometimes for purposes of, say, a consumer-facing chatbot, using different models that are not domain-specific but more general models may be more appropriate. So I think what I want people to know out there who are listening is that there, my sense is there will not be a one-size-fits-all for any institution thinking about using large language models, I think we're going to end up with a suite of models that, that institutions will want to access depending on the use case. Some will be better at writing contracts. Some will be better at doing Q&A with their customers. Some will be better at scraping the literature to find the, the best, most recent evidence for the care of that patient. Some will be better at doing population health and, and, and creating dashboards that, that can look for gaps in care. We're all still learning that as a, as a company, but also as with our partners. 
And that's, again, part of the reason that for us as a company, we are in a test and learn uh, as just as we're really driving and pushing innovation. We also know that it's early in this journey and seeing that we all understand how to use these powerful tools in a way that does the most good, whether that's improving health or reducing waste in the system or, or bringing joy back to medicine. Well, Karen, in your career, you've served in multiple public health leadership roles, and your job at Google Health is really an extension of that at scale. As we think about public health and the biggest threat to it, according to the World Health Organization, it's climate change. We've seen extreme temperatures being reported around the globe, and that brings heat-related risks like dehydration and, and heat stroke, and local governments and public health agencies around the world are working to keep their communities safe and healthy during heat waves and improve long-term resilience to future extreme heat events. And given that climate change is our biggest global public health challenge, I'd love for you to share with our listeners how Google supporting public health organizations with tools and data sets using machine learning models to help forecast national disasters to help mitigate impacts before the areas are felt. And, and overall, I wanted to ask you if you could also discuss how your technology solutions focused on public health are helping organizations effectively deal with extreme heat and other uh, health threats related to climate change. We have a, a way that we think about it here, Eric, which is our three C's, consumers, caregivers, and community. And that notion relates to our belief that health is more than healthcare. Great healthcare does matter. However, health also happens in the context of where we live and learn and work and play. There are these social determinants of health, the built environment, and the inherent risks associated uh, with that, also opportunities associated with it. So we're strong believers that we have to do what we can to address health through, through all of those lenses where we have a possibility to do. Certainly the COVID pandemic was an important time for us as a company to begin to partner more with public health agencies and organizations and researchers all around the world to help them amplify important public health messages about how to keep, how people can keep themselves safe from COVID and their communities, how people could find testing and vaccines. We've built those partnerships of amplifying communication, but also ways that we could help with data and analytics. An example would be work we did with Morehouse to build a, a health equity dashboard related to COVID. Um, or work that we've done with Boston Children's to lift up vaccine sites and address vaccine deserts where um, health departments or healthcare systems or others might want to add vaccination sites. Those are examples where we're using either our technology or existing data that we would have from maps, anonymized data that it could be useful uh, for something like identifying vaccine deserts. We have other data we've made available for purposes of like mental health. Again, anonymized data from search of, of what people are searching on at a county level called search symptom trends. And this is made available to researchers and public health entities to understand what are the priority health issues on the minds of people at the local level and to help them start to track trends and changes. Uh, we've partnered to publish with others the fact that data set, for example, is correlated with in the field mental health surveys that, that show that this kind of novel signal, anonymized privacy protecting, but made available to researchers and public health agencies can provide them more timely, actionable, granular information about their communities, about needs to do policy and planning and help protect people on the front lines. I, as you mentioned, I've had a background in public health. I was a local health officer and at the federal level. So I've seen this from both angles and having that timely granular actionable data is so important um, because you want to make decisions not from information that's two years old. So we're trying to contribute where we can with this privacy protected anonymized data into the, to the system to have more novel signals. And so sometimes we make the data available, sometimes the technology, like I mentioned with Morehouse, and sometimes we create a lighthouse experience or an experience on our own products because we think it's got enough public health importance that we can 
lean in there. And you mentioned an example of that, of heat risk. We also have built tooling like that for flood risk, fire risk, and we have some earth, earthquake risk tools. So this is coming partially out of our maps team, but also our research team that look for novel signals in our own data or ways that we can use AI to predict future risk of things like heat, fire, flood. And partners sometimes want to take that information and think about how as a healthcare system, that could also help inform them of the geo risks in their community, these climate risks, for example. And um, I, I do hope we'll have more healthcare partners that are interested in, in, over time in using, say, air quality risk to provide notifications to their patients about that, that developing risk to remind, say, uh, uh, patients with pulmonary disease like COPD or asthma to make sure they have their inhaler. So you can imagine that, that we would just create this anonymized platform and the information, but there's data behind it that a health system uh, who, who's a, a cloud partner would want to use to identify micro risks for their own population and use that to, to reach out um, for individual care. But we, we certainly want to keep doing all we can to coming out of the pandemic to identify big global public health challenges. What are the things that we can do from a data technology and uh, an experience standpoint to either enable or support or create uh, that would help people get in front of, of health risks that are uh, potentially coming at them. Another major threat to public health is social isolation due to its association with a, a wide range of negative physical, mental, and emotional outcomes. And there are several ways which social isolation can impact public health, including mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, and cognitive decline. And social isolation also impacts the physical health by weakening the immune system. We all know it contributes to cardiovascular issues, including high blood pressure, increased risk of heart disease. And of course, it leads to unhealthy habits such as poor diet, lack of exercise, substance abuse, and that in turn leads to obesity and chronic disease. And the health impact of loneliness is so far reaching that I even read one study compared it to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. The World Health Organization is making loneliness a global health priority. They recently launched their new commission on social connection, to which you're a member, and great health care matters for health, but it has to happen in the context, and that does include social connection. So, Karen, as we wrap up our conversation today, I would love for you to share your perspective on the importance of social connection on our health and provide an update on this important work that you're doing with the World Health Organization to catalyze global leadership in this area. With consumer-facing technologies and social media becoming so pervasive in our world, how can global communities find ways to better harness the power of connection on a human-to-human -human basis? I'm so thrilled to be a part of this work from the World Health Organization. It is the kind of opportunity to bring science to bear to improve people around the world. And the World Health Organization's platform and reach not only with governments, but with the private sector and with individuals is a way that we can bring this challenge into the light. You described this important framing that I want people to know, which is that loneliness is not just a feeling. It actually has physical implications. It's on the rise. One in two people in the U.S. express some sense of loneliness common around the world across all age groups and all socio-demographics. There are a lot of reasons why it's happening. What's important also, though, is that there are interventions that we can take. There's actions that we can take as individuals, as the private sector, as governments, as society more broadly, in, in all of its sectors. And so I, I love working on challenges like that, that have an evidence-based where there's um, an opportunity to, to make change and where that change is going to really affect the physical and mental and uh, social well-being of people uh, all around the world. It's work that also has important tensions and questions that, that we will need to address as a society. And you mentioned technology, which I, I think is one of those many areas Technology, for example, can be a way to address 
loneliness and isolation. If you just, I mentioned I was an internal medicine physician. A lot of my patients were seniors and many of them lived alone. That population needs a, a different sort of interventions to address the causes of their loneliness and isolation. It, it has more to do with physical pro- proximity to humans or uh, just the ability to have some some check-ins on a regular basis. And there's lots of places around the world that have already been using technologies like AI or robotics to think about how to augment the human support for seniors. So that could be a one area of work where we think about technology as an augment to fill some gaps there and keep people better uh, connected. Youth have a, a slightly different array of challenges with technology, and that can include exposure to social media that may make them feel lesser than, It can be uh, too much screen time, which many of us also have. So thinking about how we find that balance of helping people stay connected to care or to services or to each other on technology platforms, but not to the degree that they don't have that human interaction, which is so important for reasons of not only raising your oxytocin, but for the opportunity for you to grow and learn and feel connected uh, to others. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to think about this through my lens as a doctor, a public health person, and um, in this technology world of what is the, the good that we, we would want to do and what are the things, the watch outs and the ways that we want to make sure that we're not thinking of um, either over or under indexing on the opportunities for us to take advantage of all the tools in the toolbox to solve this global loneliness challenge, including ways that technology could be helpful. Well, Karen, I I am just enamored by all the great work that you're doing. You're truly contributing to great progress in our world to make a future in healthcare that's more accessible, accurate, and equitable. I'm so thankful that you were able to spend a little bit of time with us on the Race to Value to share some of your work. And again, it's been a great privilege being with you today. Eric, thank you so much for making the time. I'm glad to share some of our story and some of my story it's been a wonderful journey, and I, I'm I'm really grateful for the chance I've been able to have to make a difference in, in people's health and uh, different different parts of my different parts of my life and different roles that I've had. Thank you for all that you're doing to help continue this conversation about the importance of health for all and and value for all.